Shabbat Shalom, everybody. All right, excited to get into Romans chapter 3 today. But before I do, a couple of announcements for you. We are going to be having, coming up within the next month, a FEMA Region 5 meeting on Adobe Connect. So if you're in FEMA Region 5 and you'd like to partake of that, then please contact us at info at And also, next weekend, next Shabbat, February 18th, down in Broken Arrow, I like the name of that, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, we're going to have an assembly of the Malkitzedic for those of you in Oklahoma or the Texas area, and that's going to be between 1 o'clock and 6 o'clock Central Standard Time. That's next Shabbat, February 18th. So those of you online that are in that region, that area, then please um, contact us. You can come to our website or info at com if you want more information about meeting down in that region at the Assembly of the Malkitsedic. Um, that won't be broadcast, but it is a time where people who are following the Torah to the Tribes message and beliefs can come together in unity. So we're excited about that. So let's turn to Romans chapter 3. I dig right in today because it starts out in the third chapter, the letter to the Romans or Romia. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Primarily because they were the first to be entrusted with the oracles of Yahuwah. So there is an advantage. The advantage is that you won't have to dig through millennia upon millennia of pagan trash in your religious library. That's a huge advantage. A huge advantage because they, they've been entrusted with the oracles of Yahuwah, with the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So they have got a scriptural foundation from which they were brought up upon. Whereas we, at best, have a Romish pagan foundation that is very shaky that is crumbling beneath our very, very feet. And then to try and unlearn that and then learn the truth in righteousness is very hard for people. It's very hard for the very churched to become unchurched. It's much easier for somebody like myself who was a heathen and unchurched to come into the oracles and the truth of Scripture because I was open to truth and I wasn't trying to defend millennia upon millennia of a Romish Babylonian foundation. So there is an advantage. What profit is there? Primarily the profit is that they were entrusted with the oracles of Yahuwah. And the first to believe in his word, meaning the gospel went out from the Galilee to Judea and it went out to the nations. They were the primary ones who heard that message. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief nullify faith in Yahuwah? This is the question. 
Now, too often, though, this verse or these verses have been used at least from what I have seen in my background coming out of the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement as well as coming out of the institutionalized church, but more in the Hebrew Roots and Messianic movement, these verses have been used to justify Jewish supremacy. And it says in the scriptures that Ephraim is like a fluttering dove. You get around anything Jewish or anyone Jewish and you're like, oh, like a fluttering dove because of this idea of Jewish supremacy, which is not so. You can believe in the foundational documents of Scripture, the oracles of Yahuwah, that doesn't mean you have to dress up like a Jew. It doesn't mean that you have to do all things rabbinic. It doesn't mean you have to sit down for seven hours and do a rabbinic Passover Seder. You really don't. Because that isn't scriptural either. So returning to the oracles of Yahuwah isn't about Jewish supremacy and it isn't about Gentile illegitimacy. It is about returning to a scriptural foundation and being like Abraham one who crossed over and became the first Chavah, Hebrew. He crossed from one soil to a better soil and produced a better crop. Because if we're planted in the oracles of Yahuwah, then aren't we going to produce a better crop in our life? Because we've gone from a Babylonian or Roman pagan soil, which is really not bearing much fruit, and we've crossed over, become Hebrew, and now we're planted in the oracles of Yahweh, and we should start to produce the fruit of Sabbath, the fruits of the feasts and festivals of Yahweh. Or you're planted in another soil, and you'll produce lawlessness, you'll produce Christmas, Easter, and paganism. And really, when you start to look at that soil, it becomes very dry, and it is, doesn't produce the fertility that you need later in life because you become more scrupulous, don't you? And you're like, no, this, this may have been okay 30 years ago, but you know what? My life is flashing before me and I need to dig deep. And this soil is taking me nowhere. So we become Hebrews. We cross over. But what Paul is really talking about here is he is juxtaposing stewardship and ownership with responsibility and possession. The Jews, at the writing of this letter, they had become so prideful in their view of ownership and possession. But it's not about ownership and possession. It's about responsibility and possession. So um, responsibility, excuse me, and stewardship. So what the Jews believed erroneously was that they owned the entrance rights to the covenant. And they owned it by the very mark in their flesh, circumcision. Well, they owned it. They owned the entrance rights to the covenant, and they became proud of that. And that the Torah, well, that was their sole possession. So really, this is juxtaposing stewardship and ownership, responsibility and possession. It's not about what you own. It's not about what you possess. It's about 
the stewardship with the things of Yahweh and the responsibility that you have to them. That's what Paul's really trying to talk about here. Yes, we build our biblical worldview from a Hebrew and Jewish foundation. We should. We shouldn't be building a biblical worldview from a Babylonian and Romish backdrop. But that doesn't mean you go headlong into rabbinic or messianic destruction either. So there has to be the tacking balance, which is the narrow road that leads to life. Look at verse 4. By no means, yes, let Yahweh be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you might be proven Zadik righteous by your words and triumph when you judge. Now, some of your translations may have it that when you're judged, but it's talking about that you would triumph when you judge because it's our character here that he's talking about that proves us righteous. It's our character that proves us righteous. What do you do when you're hard-pressed? What do you do? Will you make the right judgment or the wrong judgment when you start to get grated, when your flesh starts to prickle up? What will you do in those situations? What will you do when those events come upon your life? Will you be proven before Yahuwah or will you be condemned before Yahuwah? Because the liberal worldview is, oh, you don't, don't judge me. You can't. We judge all the time. You better be judging all the time. I judge all the time. It's this liberal, don't judge me. Somebody who says, don't judge me, you want to back up because you go, well, what are you hiding? Judge me. Now, you're not going to judge where my eternal destination is. That is what the scripture talks about, don't judge. You have no idea what is in the heart of man. You can't judge that. But you make judgments all the time, right? About everything. We have to. That's our responsibility. And when brethren come together, there's going to sometimes be a grating. And you have to make judgments and judge in those situations. And what you pray is that your judgments would prove you righteous, both parties, rather than condemned. If you don't deal with it, then you're no better than the heathen. Because biblical mandate says we face our conflicts head on, we make judgments, and then we pray, both parties, that we can walk through that and neither be condemned, but be proven righteous. That's the biblical way, and that's what Paul's talking about. Character, righteousness, holiness. Understand, when Paul uses the word zadik, righteous, he uses it in three, three different ways. Very important that we understand this, because righteous, righteous, righteousness isn't all grouped into one thing. And people have different ideas. Well, that brother's righteous. Well, what are you talking about here? There's three different ways in which Paul uses zadik, righteous. Number one, forensically. Forensic righteousness. You know, like a crime scene, because you're all criminals. I'm the chiefest criminal of them all. We're all criminals, are we not? 
and none of us are going to pass muster. And when Yahusha comes on the criminality of your and my life, forensically, he's going to inspect, and none of us will have that kind of righteousness. Forensic righteousness, close inspection of your criminality and my criminality, which is stinking death, can only be attributed to us by who? Yahusha. So he's going to talk about forensic righteousness. Only Yahusha can make us forensically righteous. Upon close inspection, it's only Yahusha that can make me forensically righteous and make you forensically righteous. That's the only. There's nothing that you can do. No works, no Torah, no commandment keeping, nothing you can do that can make you forensically righteous. It is the keporah, the hilsamas, the atonement of Yahusha that brings forensic righteousness, number one. Number two, there is national righteousness. There's a group of people that are a bunch of pagans. They come into covenant through blood ratification and the sprinkling of the book of the covenant, and they are made what? Nationally righteous. They are the brought-out children of Israel. They're a nationally righteous group, are they not? So there's national righteousness, which comes by covenant entrance into Yahweh's nation, brought about by a community or nationally righteous act. And number three... There is, of course, individual righteousness. Biblical conduct, biblical ethics, shunning evil and choosing a life dedicated to service, dedicated to service of Yahuwah. Obedience brings about a halakha or a walk of righteousness, and that's based upon the individual. But don't confuse individual righteousness with forensic righteousness. And don't confuse national righteousness with individual righteousness. Paul is talking about forensic, national, and individual righteousness. And you have to look at the context of the surrounding scope and landscape of text to understand which one he's talking about. Does that make sense? Because this is where people are like, oh, you're trying to keep the Torah to be righteous. Don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? Well, excuse me, you're mixing up individual righteousness with forensic righteousness. You have to understand the distinction. Oh, so now you're keeping Passover and Sukkot. What, and you think you're righteous? Oh, so no, Jesus died for us. We don't have to do that. Oh, but you're confusing forensic righteousness with a national righteousness. This is very important that we understand what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Romans. Because if you just put this in a bucket of righteousness and mix it all up, you are going to be unrighteous in all your actions, in everything you do, forensically, nationally, and individually. Because you'll just think it doesn't matter. And that is the state of the institutionalized church. But it's not really complicated. You have to look at the landscape of the surrounding text to be able to determine which and what he's talking about. It's so important. Because isn't righteousness one of the biggest, most confusing terms for the Christian? 
What does it mean? Isn't it all about Jesus' blood? I really don't have to do anything. Because that makes me righteous. Yes, but what about national and covenant and covenantal and individual? Very important. Look at number five, or I should say verse five, excuse me. But if our righteousness establishes the righteousness of Yahuwah, what shall we say? Is Yahuwah unrighteous when he inflicts wrath? I mean, I speak as a man. By no means. For then how shall he judge the world? So right here, Paul is speaking about his own Jewish people. We know, of course, that all 12 tribes and the sojourner were inclusive of their disobedience to the book of the covenant at Mount Sinai, were they not? That disobedience there brought about the ultimate solution, which, of course, was Yahusha. So now he's talking about what? The nation as covenantal righteousness, but they blew it, so the solution is the forensic righteousness of Yahusha. You've got a couple of things going on here in the text. And you've got to be able to look at this because Yahusha is the solution to what? The covenantal breach of the Jewish people. Or as we know, all 12 tribes and the sojourner because it wasn't just the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. You see, the disobedience that happened at the golden calf breach The ultimate solution is the forensic righteousness that comes solely by Yahusha. Then, is Yahuwah, the question is asked, is Yahuwah unrighteous to inflict wrath upon them? Of course not. This is human logic and reasoning. That's what he's communicating. If Yahuwah doesn't judge them, then how can he judge the nations? If he doesn't judge Israel then how can he judge the nations? Meaning all, that means all, humanity is under Yahuwah's judgment. Both Israel and the nations. For if the truth, verse 7 of Yahuwah, increased through my lying nature for his glory, why am I still judged a sinner? And not rather, as some slanderously report, and as some affirm that we say, let us break the Torah, do evil, that grace may abound. Their condemnation is forever. Paul isn't speaking of himself here, as mainline Christianity would have us believe, because verse 7's objection is brought forward in the person of the ungodly. Not Paul but it's brought forward in the person of the ungodly, not Paul. Look at it. Because the first person, I, of verse 7, is a hypothetical person making a statement. It's rhetorical. Paul continues on in verse 7 by impersonating the objector by using the first person singular. 
and most miss this. The point is, the Jewish sinner being used to highlight the glory of Yahuwah doesn't give them an out when it comes to Yahuwah's judgment. Just because you're Jewish, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Even though you have got the oracles, it doesn't give you a Jewish get-out-of-free card, out-of-jail-free card when it comes to Yahuwah's judgment. Just because it brought about the righteousness of Yahuwah through Yahusha, you're still going to be judged just as much as the nations. The nation of Israel, they had an advantage, but they blew that advantage at the golden calf. So they're in the same predicament as the nations were back at Babel. Their nations had Babel and they blew it. Israel had the golden calf and they blew it. The nations had Babel and they blew it. So Yahweh went and said, I'll make myself a new nation out of the Hebrew that crossed over from one soil to a better soil. And then he made a nation, a new nation, cast the other nations off to the gods of these worlds. And the nations are now under the judgment and stewardship of the gods of the world. And we see that everywhere, don't we? With the obelisks and pillars and Allah and Easter and all of these false gods. Are they real gods? Yes, they're real created gods. They're not the true living creator. And they have been cast off the nations under the gods of the world. So he made a new nation out of Abraham. But then that nation blew it also. So we have the two, two paradigms from which he's talking about. The main point is that all are guilty before Yahweh. Both Israel, the nation, the Jewish people, inclusive of that nation, and the nations. What then, verse 9, are we better than them? No, in no way. For we have proven before that Yahudim, Jews, Greeks, and Arameans are all under sin. So is this making sense so far? So far in the scope of the letter. You see, it's very important when we go back to Genesis 11 and the table of the nations that we understand what happened. That the nations decided, oh, they would make Babel. And at that point, we see that the nations then are cast off, they're disinherited, and they're put under the stewardship of the gods. And that's why the nations serve other gods. The pantheon of gods. We see now the major influence of one of the daily deities, which is Allah, which Muhammad chose out of um, the, um, the Kaaba, is one of the main influencing gods, more so than the Greek pantheon. But 2,000 years ago, the world was smaller, right? Christopher Colombo hadn't found the new world, right, if you believe that. 
Um, so the world was smaller, and its influence was the gods that were in the area of the Greco-Roman world. But today, we don't have such a great influence of the Greco-Roman pantheon. The pantheon that is influencing the world today is actually come out of the Kabar. But is it still one of the gods that are in charge of the nations. Now, if you go down into India and areas like that, you're going to come under the influence of the gods that have the jurisdiction down there. Because Yahweh disinherited the nations, and he put them under the stewardship of other lesser gods. And that's the war that we're in right now. It's a battle between the created gods and their servants and the one true living Elohim and his servants. The nations and the holy nation. The gods of the world and the one true living Elohim. The creator Elohim or the created Elohim. This is the war. Because our war is not against flesh and blood but Prince This is amazing. Now, there was the explosive, destructive act of Babel, disinherited. There was the explosive, destructive act of the golden calf, disinherited from the book of the covenant. Instead of handed over to the nations, handed over to Moses and put under the stewardship, not of foreign gods, but the book of the law, the schoolmaster and tutor, until the forensic righteousness of Yahushua comes in. And can he bring healing to the nation and the nations? Both. That's the mystery of the gospel, the healing to the nations through the forensic righteousness of Yahushua. Doesn't matter if it was Babel or the golden calf, come out from what you were stewarded under, the Elohim of the world, or Moses' tutor, the book of the law, and return to the forensic righteousness of Yahushua that is only available through national covenant blood ratification. You're all coming in through the same way. The forensic righteousness of Yahushua that then goes to the national level and the individual level. It filters down, does it not? Yahushua's arms are so wide, but then he brings you into the nation and he deals with you as an individual. This is the gospel message. This is amazing. Powerful stuff. What then? Are we better than them? Verse 9. No, in no way. We're all up the creek, right? We're all up the creek. We're all under sin. Yahushua is the solution for the nations and the nation. That's Paul's point. A little long-winded of me, but I hope you understand. Now for the verdict of all humanity. All humanity, four points. Number one, man is a sinner by act. Number two, man is a sinner by nature. Number three, man is a sinner by imputation. And number four, the estate of man, the human family, is condemned under sin. Very succinct, the verdict for all humanity in four points points. We're done.
We're done. There's nothing you and I can do by ourselves that is going to make us forensically righteous. It has to be from outside to work inside. The plan of salvation is true to Yahweh's character, is it not? It's true to his very nature. Verse 10, as it is written, as it's written in the Psalms, and he goes on now to quote the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none. There is none that seeks after Yahweh. They are all gone out of the way. They have altogether become worthless. There is none that does good. No, not one. Not one. Now we come to the doctor's clinic in the next verse. We come to the clinic of the great physician. You know when you go to the doctor? Well, when I was a boy at boarding school, stick out your tongue, open your mouth, stick out your tongue. Ah, right? We're at the doctor's clinic. Look, their throat is an open tomb. Let's look at your throat. See what kind of disease it goes. Ah, their throat is an open tomb. With their languages, they have spoken deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and the way of shalom, peace, they have not known. There is no fear of Elohim before their eyes. Don't you see that today? People, they just, I mean, I'm like, do you not fear the creator Elohim? I mean, I walk around daily with a healthy dose of fear for the great almighty Yahuwah. And that's the beginning of wisdom. That's just to begin wisdom, right? And people do that, and you're like, wow. I just cannot imagine that, thankfully. I love having a healthy fear. That's not being afraid. That is honor, reverence, respect. It's not like, oh, I'm afraid of the Creator. The simple thing is this. I learned this mountain climbing in my 20s. If you fear something... So much. Guess what? You're never afraid of anything else. Because you can only truly fear something one thing at a time. When you're crossing a precipice with 8,000 feet of elevation right there and you're going to drop off, you're not thinking about being afraid of anything else. That is what you fear. And it releases you and encumbers you from everything else that you thought was scary. That's what Yahweh does. He liberates you. If you fear Him, you'll be able to move and operate through this world fearlessly. You'll be able to do things that people can't do because they're crippled by fear. I don't understand how people can operate in this global New World Order society without Yahweh. I would be afraid. Now, I find it a comedy oftentimes. I think they're all nuts, and I'm not afraid. Because I fear Yahweh. Let it burn. I don't care. Because no matter what, we're going to the promised land. And people are like, oh, I'm so scared, you know. But, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. When you have a healthy fear of Yahweh, you are liberated from the fears of man and the fears of the world. It's a beautiful thing. So it really works for you. Job 
chapter 25, verse 4, it is written, How then can a man be just with Elohim? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Meaning what? Unlike the Dalai Lama, I believe that man is born a sinner. I've witnessed that with my children and all of your children (laughs) from the (laughs) get-go. And they learn how to be righteous. Now, the Dalai Lama says that they're born perfectly righteous and they learn to be sinners. But the proof, no, I'm sorry. If not, the Dalai Lama needs to go work in a nursery for a week and then come back and we'll see what his Buddhism's all about. And all means all, as I said earlier. All are under the power of sin. It's a universal condition. It's not limited to any particular sector of humanity. We're all under sin. Believers from the nations have to turn from the dominion of the nations, Elohim, and turn towards the one true Elohim and his covenant. And Israel needs to turn from the dominion of the schoolmaster, to the same new book of the covenant. We all need the forensic righteousness of Yahushua that is available in the new covenant or the new book of the covenant. We all really need what? Another mountaintop experience. That's what we all need. All of us from the nations and the nation. The behavior of sinners is chiefly excuse me, known in activities such as murders, And it culminates in destruction and a complete absence of peace. There's no shalom, no peace, no peace. I know peace. I truly do. And naturally, I'm a very cantankerous person. And I have to be in the Word a lot because that's where I find peace. And when I'm in the Word, when I am reading the Scripture... That is where I truly find peace. It is literally like balm to my soul. I mean, I can be stressed, anxious, whatever. If I sit there, a cup of tea often helps me as well with the word. But, you know, I like my little creature comfort. But it's the word that truly is healing balm. So I don't understand it when believers aren't in the word daily, more than daily. I just don't understand that. Because if we're truly disciples of Yahushua, we have got to be in the Word. That's part of the fruit, bearing the fruit. So, let's continue on now in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3. Now we know that the things which the law says, it, to the, it says to those who are living under the law, the law. It doesn't say that, though. But you knew it would say that, right? In like 99% of the translations. It's so, nowadays, it's so like obvious to me that it's comical. But it really wasn't obvious to me for so many years, and it perplexed me deeply. Now I find it quite funny because it's like, oh, fraud. Now we know that the things that the law says, it says to those who are living in the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before Yahuwah. 
the sneaky little monks. Funky monks. Again, in verse 19. Under the law would be hupo nomo, which is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. But there ain't no hupo and no mo homo. There ain't no hoopo, no homo, so homo. In Ro- here, it's in Romans 6, verse 14. So there is actually no valid reason for them to change ento nomo, which is actually in the text, into being translated under law, other than what? To willfully, defiantly mislead you away from the commandments of Yahweh. And that's really what it is. It's those funky monks that wanted to have a luau under their monkey robes in the medieval times. And they wanted to be able to do that kind of stuff and get away with it, so they monked with the text. Martin Luther came along, and he was a German, and they love bratwurst. I mean, he's not going to change it, is he? Really? Can you imagine a German giving up his, his frankfurters and his uh, bratwurst? There's no way. He's going to go along with it to mess him with my diet here. And they didn't have much to eat back then, did they? Really? But we have a great, great calling, and it is a calling to righteousness. So we're not going to monk with the text in verse 19 anymore. We're going to look and we're going to see that it says, Entonomo, which should be translated in the correct view, that the whole law is not to be put in an unnecessarily negative light, which the common translations, by making it under the law, they put the law in this negative light, and it's so unnecessary. It's much better to translate it correctly in the law, within the law, or inside the law, which is really the context, and what the Greek language holds up. That's the only acceptable translation. We're talking about those who sit within the sphere or influence of the book of the law, not Torah in general. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about those who sit within the sphere or influence of the book of the law, not the whole Torah in general. That needs to be communicated. And it is communicated quite clearly even in the Greek text. Verse 20, Therefore, by the works of the law alone, without heartfelt faith, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. By remaining within, not under, but within the book of the law's sphere of influence, Paul's audience would never experience the justification the forensic righteousness that comes only by Yahushua. You see, the book of the law gave them knowledge of sin. Yes, for sure it did. The breaking of the covenant and the sin of the golden calf, but it could never bring them into the personal hope of the promises that was given to Abraham, could it? Never. Now let's look at the term 
ergon nomo, the works of the law. There's four interpretations, four interpretations for what works of the law, ergo nomo, mean. And I'll give you the traditional four. Number one, well, actually, the fourth one is very untraditional. I'll give you the three traditional. Number one, the institutionalized church interpretation. Works of law, ergon nomo, means keeping the law of Moses or any customs and commandments therein. If you keep the commandments of Moses, you're what? Doing works of the law. You shouldn't be doing that. Number two, the messianic interpretation. Trying to attain justification by keeping the law of Moses. This doesn't mean we don't keep the law of Moses, but we just rightly apply it, which of course they never do. Right? The third view on ergonomo, works of law, is the Karite messianic interpretation. Nehemia Gordon and um, Avi Ben Mordecai, Michael Rood. It's the oral law, the traditions of the rabbis and the elders. The fourth view, in light of what we've been learning, in light of the book of the law and the book of the covenant paradigm, is the Malkit-Zedek view. The works of the law is the labor of the book of the law, Galatians 3.10, as opposed to the rest of the newly blood-ratified covenant inclusion. The book of the covenant Torah goes to the community. And that we're talking about is leaving the schoolmaster the works of the law, the book of the law, and returning to covenant Torah by the forensic righteousness of Yahushua and his blood ratification. You're not getting rid of the whole Torah. You're rightly dividing between book of the law, works of the law, and covenant Torah blood ratification. So works of law isn't speaking so much about obedience to Elohim as the institutionalized church falls prey interpreting it as, as much as it speaks of how a group or sect follow, divide, and interpret his law as appropriate to the dynamics of their faith. You see, we as Malkitzedics, as a Malkitzedic sect, if you will, are supposed to follow. We're supposed to divide. We're supposed to interpret his law as appropriate to the dynamics of our faith. And we do, and we discern that we should be included and inclusive of Book of the Covenant Torah through blood ratification. That's what we do. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls, they use manuscript 4QMMT. It uses this Hebrew phrase, Masecha Torah, which is works of the law in the Hebrew. It's Masecha Torah. And it's included in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So wouldn't we want to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and find out what does works of law mean to the Dead Sea Scrolls community? What's the context of Masecha Torah 
to the Dead Sea Scrolls community. Because then that would tell us if we're right or wrong in our interpretation. Because I believe those that were in the works of the law were in fact saying national covenant inclusion is by keeping the book of the law. Well, we find that is upheld through the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we find the Hebrew word Masechah Torah. It's the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word ergonomo, or the English works of the law. And we find within the Dead Sea Scrolls community that they used Masechah Torah to define rules of conduct. Listen, they said that works of law was how they defined rules of conduct and inclusion into their Dead Sea Scrolls community, and it was based upon their interpretation of the book of the law. How do we know that? Because Deuteronomy, in particular, was found there with, I think, like 25 copies of the book of the law in Qumran, because that is how they decided whether you would have covenant community inclusion was based upon their interpretation of the book of the law. Works of the law is attributed to how you define covenant inclusion through the book of the law. And we shouldn't be doing that, is what Paul says. And based upon Galatians 3.10... And we find Galatians 4.16, Dead Sea Scrolls, Manuscript 4QMMT, Romans 3.20, and the 25 copies of the Book of the Law unearthed at Qumran. The evidence is that Ergon Nomo Masechah Torah is identifiable with the Book of the Law. And it's unequivocal. The evidence is out. You just have to weigh it. Paul is criticizing sectarian observance of the book of the law that impedes heartfelt faith. He's criticizing sectarian observance of the book of the law because it impedes heartfelt faith, noting that no flesh can ever be justified that way. Never, never. We've got to remember that in Paul's day, the Jew, even in the nations, were deeply entrenched into the ownership and possession of the book of the law. They were deeply entrenched. It was all about ownership and possession of the book of the law. They were far removed from the golden calf debacle. Yes, for sure they were. And because of this, it seriously, it seriously hampered the work of clarifying the Pauline position with regard to the Torah and the covenants of promise. Would you agree? I mean, there is nothing that has been hampered more than the Pauline position in how he interprets what is Torah, what is law. People have been confused for 2,000 years because they're not understanding this. And even the Messianic movement has tried its best. Yes, let's start keeping Sabbath. Yes, let's get back to the feasts and festivals of Yahweh. Let's clean up and get back into what Yahweh calls food and what he doesn't call food. But the next thing you know, they're saying that the works of the law, and they're, they're, they're saying that it's all about the oral law. Well, where's that verse? 
It doesn't exist. Oh, it's, it, we're juxtaposing the written Torah against the oral Torah. Ooh, ooh, where's that verse? Galatians 3.10 names it and claims it. It's the book of the law. Why do we have to reinvent it and make it more complicated than it really is? Because you're trying to follow a Karite sect that does, denies that Yahushua is the Messiah and sniffs barley for a living? That's not my idea of fun. Chasing around men in skirts? I mean, I'm not up for that. You know? Maybe some of you are. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 21. Men in skirts. Unless they're kilts. And then. We used to have a fellow that came with a kilt, didn't we? Yeah. But now, the righteousness of Yahuwah, apart from the law, is manifest, being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. Yahushua is manifest apart from the book of the law, which is witnessed by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Torah and the prophets. I mean, it's quite, isn't it? Doesn't it just unravel so nicely? You just, and it unravels once you understand the paradigm shift of the book of the law and the book of the covenant. See, up until this time, the major event, think about it, at the time that Paul is writing to the Romans, what was the major event that guided the Jews when it came to the righteousness of Yahuwah? What was the major event of Yahuwah's righteousness that was ever displayed to the Jewish people? It was the Exodus. That was some major righteousness going on there and some major judgment of the gods of the nations, right? So that was what guided them. That was the major event of Yahweh's righteousness that had ever been a manifest. And then subsequently, they came out and they went to Sinai and they were given the righteousness of the book of the covenant. So now, if he's going to do a major, major righteousness event of restoration, what do you think it's going to include? An exodus from the nations and a return to the book of the covenant. We're not reinventing the wheel here. And that's what he's doing. There is a major event that's come by the blood ratification of Yahushua. It is the exodus of Yahuwah's people from the nations. The judgment on the nation's Elohim and a return to the mountaintop experience where you will accept the book of the covenant given as Torah and have the forensic righteousness that is only by the sprinkling of the blood upon that scroll. The blood was never sprinkled on the book of the law. That is the word works of the law, and it should stay buried in Qumran. This is the Pauline position in regards to Torah. And it is passionately exciting, is it not? Thank you, California. Man, I just sometimes I think, am I the only one that is moved to the core when I, I mean, I still cannot believe that he has chosen us 
chosen me. I mean, it blows my mind. Every day before I get out of bed, I, I say a certain thing to Yahweh. First thing that comes out of my mouth. My goodness. Sets me off for the rest of the day. And things hit me. And, but you know what? I know where I am. This brings me right back. He manifests his righteousness even further by sparing the nation from his own genocide and imposing a book of the law upon them. That was a do or die situation. Even after they transgressed, he manifests more righteousness on them. Okay, we won't do genocide on you. He's up for a bit of genocide though. But Moses intercedes and says, no, let's not do any genocide on the nation today. Okay, well, instead of doing genocide on them, I will manifest my righteousness even more by not doing it, but I will place them not under, like the, those from Babel, the gods of the nations. They'll still be under me, but they're going to be under mediation, stewardship, and a schoolmaster until we can figure out this forensic righteousness problem, which is basically going to bring Everyone, all humanity, even those cast off at Babel, you're all going to be in the same pot. It's going to be all-inclusive. Anyone, any man, anyone, anywhere, any nation, you can come back. There is no Jewish supremacy. There is no Gentile delegitimacy. You are all one in Messiah Ephesians 2. This is powerful stuff. Now something apart from the book of the law has been revealed itself in Yahusha, bringing us a full 360-degree return to Yahweh through an exodus from the nation and the zenith of his righteousness, of course, a return to covenant Torah in Yahusha. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of Yahweh through faith in Yahusha the Messiah to all and upon all, and all means all to those that believe. There it is, summation and point. Pisteo Ieso Christu, through faith in Yahusha the Messiah, isn't actually in view here, though. I mean, even though we'd like to dumb it down enough that it is in view, it really isn't in view. Because it isn't about you. And it isn't about me. Fancy that. Fancy that. It's not all about me. And it's certainly not all about you. It's all about him. Fancy that. Pisteo Ieso Christos. It's about the faithfulness of Yahusha, the Messiah. It's not objective faith in Christ. It's subjective faith. It's Messiah's faith. It's because of his faithfulness. It's because of his faithfulness. The righteousness of Yahweh is revealed through the faithfulness of Messiah Yahusha. Through the Messiah event, it's revealed to the faithful, but it's not because of your faithfulness, you unfaithful sod. It is not that at all. That's a lump of soil, by the way. Just clarification. It is not, in case you were thinking, I mean, it's a sick and twisted world, isn't it? But anyway, it's about a lump of soil. Sorry. 
Got to stay on track here. We are talking about, sorry, to the pure of heart, all things are pure. But apparently, (laughs) my mind was not right then. So we will continue on. The righteousness of Yahweh is revealed through the faithfulness of Messiah Yahushua because it's through the Messiah event. It's revealed to the faithful, yes. It's revealed to those of us that do believe, yes. But it's only because of Yahushua's faithfulness that we believe in the message, isn't it? It's not because I'm faithful that I believe in the message. It's because of his faithfulness that I believe in the message. I know because he is faithful. It flips the whole thing. And that's the problem with the institutionalized church and the translations. It's all about me and my faith. But it really isn't at all. Because that's bankrupt. Without his faithfulness, we've got nothing. It's all about elevating Yahushua. And this is what I challenge you to to do. This ministry teaches that Yahushua is the high priest and that he has, through his blood ratification, called his people back to Torah, covenant, faithful living. That's the Torah, covenants of promise, the book of the covenant. Does that message lead you to man or does that message lead you to a high priest after the order of Melchizedek Yahushua? Where does it lead you to? Because Everything that is spoken from this pulpit has to lead to the elevation of Yahushua. That's how you check the fruit. If it's going to lead you to some high priest on a hill in the Zionist state of Israel, you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. If it's going to lead you to a papal retreat, you've got a problem. It's got to be about the blood. What? <laughs> the Pope blessed the Super Bowl? Was he at the Super Bowl? I didn't even know he knew football. I don't even understand football. Yes, they're all chasing around men in tights chasing pigskin. I mean, if that doesn't shout out gladiator, I mean, I don't know, right? Men in spandex hugging on each other, running around chasing pigskin. Then at half time, all sucking on hot dogs. If that doesn't tell you it's not for the righteous of Yahweh, then I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Right? Lady Gaga, 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 Gaga. Is she really a lady? Because we haven't seen Marilyn Manson in some years. You know? Marilyn Manson disappears and Lady Gaga appears. I'm just saying. Things that make you go, giggly gaga. Let's get back into the text when things go wayward. Verse 23. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of Yahweh being justified freely by his unmerited favor through the redemption that is in Yahushua Messiah, whom Yahweh has set forth. Ooh. 
I love the King Jimmy sometimes. This is, this is when they, I mean, you just can't beat this. Whom Yahweh has set forth to be a propitiation. Does that, is that, I mean, that's just like chocolate on your lips, isn't it? A propitiation through faith in his blood. I mean, that, you couldn't come up with a better word. Sorry, but that is beautiful. Whom Yahweh has set forth to be a propitiation through the... F- I want to go around saying that all day long. I just do. For Yahweh has set forth to be a propitiation through the faith in his blood, declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Propitiation. Of course, the Greek, hilastrion, or the Hebrew, keporah. All powerful words, keporah, hilastrion, propitiation. Here's the power. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. That's what this word means. The mercy seat. So now we connect the dots and really see where the power is. The mercy seat in the LXX, in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint brings forth the error all of all the other translations. And the Septuagint just brings forth clarity here because the Septuagint translates Hilastros, Keporah, as mercy seat. And here, Yahusha attributes that to Messiah Yahusha. So not only who's your high priest, but who's your mercy seat? Who's your mercy seat? Yahusha is clearly referred to as a new kind of mercy seat. Unequivocal. He is referred to as a new kind of mercy seat. Now, as the psalmist says, Selah, because we must pause on that. Think about the ramifications of Yahusha being called as a new kind of mercy seat. What was hidden behind the curtain in the book of the law is now publicly on display for all to see. What was hidden behind the curtain is now publicly on display for all to see. So how's that going to look if you choose another altar and another high priest? You'll end up on another mercy seat. And that makes no sense. That's kind of a blot out choice if you ask me. You're blotted out if you make that choice. That's a blot out choice. And that is what is so important about what's being taught. Because it's a blot-out choice if you make the wrong choice. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his zadokah, his righteousness, that he might be righteous and the justifier of anyone who believes in Yahusha. Where is man's boasting then? It's worthless. By what law is man made righteous? By works alone? No, by the law of faith. Just as Israel, just as Israel accepted Yahweh's proposal by faith, all that Yahweh has said we will do. That took great faith, did it not? They didn't know. All that Yahweh has said, Exodus 19, we shall do. 
And then by that faith, they entered into the book of the covenant Torah through blood ratification and then a covenant confirming meal. We, likewise, as we return with this great exodus experience from the nations, we accept Yahushua's proposal by faith. By faith. Then we are supposed to enter into the covenant after partaking of his last supper because we witnessed his crucifixion. That's it. Therefore, we conclude that a man is made righteous by faith apart from the works of the law, which we have already concluded is adherence to the book of the law as we have found through the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts. We're made righteous without the labor of the book of the law. That not even our fathers could bear that burden, it says in Acts. Why do you put a burden upon the children of Israel that not even our fathers could bear? Yahushua gives us the newly blood ratified covenant inclusion. The book of the covenant, Torah, its community right standing in him alone. The forensic right standing comes through the shedding of Yahushua's blood that's sprinkled on the covenant just as blood was sprinkled on the book of the covenant in Exodus 24. It gives us a forensic right standing. But then because of the forensic right standing by Yahushua, we come in as a nation from the nations and we partake of the national attributes of the feasts, Sabbaths, and community living. There's national righteousness. Then we have a duty to walk that out as an individual in works of righteousness individually. Forensic, national, individual. In summation, Yahushua is the access to it all, is he not? Super powerful. Verse 29, as we finish up chapter 3, which I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed studying this. Is he the Elohim of the Jews only? Is he not also the Elohim of the nations? Yes, of course, the nations also. Since it is Elohim Echad, the one true living Elohim who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision also by faith. Yahweh disinherited the nations and he put them under the dominion of other Elohim. Then he went about creating a new nation out of Abram, a nation that also fell in rebellion and were put not under rebel Elohim, like the nations, but put under the schoolmaster, the book of the law, still under Yahweh's dominion, unlike the nations that were under the dominion of rebel Elohim. Just as there was an exodus event that brought the opportunity of covenant inclusion, there is now the greatest exodus event available, the exodus from come out of her, my people, Come out of the nations, the exodus event. Come to the mountain and receive the blood ratification of Yahushua and enter into the book of the covenant given as Torah, Hebrews 8, 6. And you will now nationally live in righteousness and thereby you'll have the equipment from your fellow saints to encourage you to individually walk it out. 
forensic, national, and individual, the righteousness that Yahweh has for his children. Now Yahusha, he has wiped the slate clean. He has healed the nations and all have the opportunity. All means all. All have the opportunity to join the one true Elohim, the Elohim of Israel and his holy nation and individually to become holy in the priesthood. Do we then make void the Torah through personal faith? By no means we actually establish the Torah. Amen? Powerful chapter, isn't it? Wow. Wow. Questions, comments. Let's see, this is from a couple of friends down in California. We might know them, Andrea and Sean. Mm. Just wondering in regards to when you're expressing your astonishment as to Yeshua choosing you, what do you get up in the morning every morning and say to Yeshua? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be a personal private dinner conversation. (laughs) Did you hear that, Sean and Andrea? Well, I do in my pajamas in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that came from Sean, I bet you. Yes. Any other serious questions? None! <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh for what he has done for us. It is powerful. Powerful. Abba, we thank you for your word, how it inspires, invigorates, and empowers us, Abba. We thank you for your people. Abba, we thank you most and foremost through and for your son, Yahusha, that enables us to be a part of these blessings, both covenantally, individually, and Abba, only through Yahusha, forensically. We ask, Abba, that you would cement in this third chapter into our daily living. It truly inspired me this week as I study. Truly inspired me, Abba, to do what you demand of us, even in those trying situations, even in those situations of friction, the Abba, that we are to judge, and then we pray that we will be judged that we did the righteous work that you have called us to. We thank you for this time in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.